Hello and welcome to the Friday, April 8th, 2022 edition of On Iowa Politics. Support provided by New Pioneer Co-op, celebrating 50 years as Eastern Iowa's source for locally and responsibly sourced groceries with stores in Iowa City, Coralville, and Cedar Rapids, and online through Co-op Cart at newpi.coop. This week, ballot questions, no answers, Democratic Senate primary, is it over? and the Golden Dome of Wisdom. Hi, I'm James Lynch at the Cedar Rapids Gazette, and with me today are Sarah Watson of the Quad City Times. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. Jared McNett of the Sioux City Journal. Good morning, Jared. Good morning, and good morning to all the listeners out there in podcast land. <laughs> Aaron Murphy, State House Bureau Chief for the Gazette. Good morning, Aaron. Uh, good morning, although I have a question right off the top about this Golden Dome of Wisdom. Uh, I'm not familiar with that place. You'll have to Tell me about that later. Well, I stole that line from Gazette Opinion Editor Todd Dorman. Good morning, Todd. Good morning. You can you can use that line with no royalties or <laughs> or you know copyright issues. <laughs> but we'll have to run a correction every time we use it. Uh, <laughs> Speaking of the legislature, if there was history made at the Iowa legislature this week, it was probably a naughty word uttered on the House floor when Republicans, surprisingly, accepted an amendment from Democrat Dave Jacoby. Beyond that, much of the week was like a steering contest as House and Senate Republicans played, I'm not going to do what you want me to do until you do what I want you to do. It's rare <laughs> when retirement speeches are welcome relief from the legislative action or inaction, as the case may be. Aaron, um, reading the tea leaves, it appears we're entering the end game, even if the end is not in sight. Yeah, it's uh, well, first of all, I, I, again, I have a question of clarification for you. Was the history made the naughty word or the fact that the majority party accepted a minority party amendment? Because I could believe either one. It, it, <laughs> well, the naughty word for sure. And actually, they accepted two or three amendments. It was oh, it was goodness. an unusual day. Um, yeah, I, I guess maybe it was historic because uh, they accepted either two or three Democratic amendments, um, wow. which is very rare. The bipartisan uh, it dream made me want to jump up and say, "Wait a minute, is this germane?" <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, you're, you're, you've described it pretty well. It, it's we're at this weird point in the session where um, there's hardly anything left to do. But at the same time, we have no idea how long it's going to take. Uh, it we're nowhere near the end, so um, we've got the the private school tuition scholarships or the vouchers, depending on your uh, preferred vernacular. Um, the uh, the bottle bill, God bless it, is still out there. Um, Unemployment benefits changes, um, some, and, and then that doesn't include the budgets that are still got to be hammered out. Um, eminent domain has reared its head. Uh, so there's some pretty big issues that are unresolved, even with Republican majorities in both chambers. Um, and so, it, it, again, it's the kind of that point in session where most of the work is now being done behind closed doors, either in caucus or 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 even just meetings between leaders, between Jack Whitford, Pat Grassley, and, and the governor um, until they can all reach an agreement. So and the rest of us are all out here waiting for the white smoke. Um, and, and it could be a while uh, because uh, the, from everything we hear, um, 
there's some strong and very clear uh, dividing lines on 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 most, if not all, of those issues. Uh, so it it could still be a while yet. It sounds like the Senate has pretty much said we're not going to do any of the budgets that the House has sent over and the House has sent over, I think, all of their budgets. Um, and the Senate says we're not going to do any of those until you do the educational savings account bill, the ESA voucher bill that the governor wants. The House has not shown uh, much inclination to do that. Um, there are enough Republicans in the House that don't want to do it that it's just kind of sitting there. And it doesn't sound like those folks um, are willing to compromise to keep the process moving. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it feels like um, this could take a while, uh, either um, uh, until somebody cries uncle or they figure out how everybody can get what they want and save face. Uh, <laughs> you know, how, how do you find that compromise where we all look like we got what we wanted? Um, and, and we're not going to be here all summer. Um, and with all this going on, with so much going on, um, the House and Senate basically uh, took off Thursday, uh, and they're off today. And the House isn't coming back Monday, and maybe not Tuesday. Um, so you know, the, this this is going to take a while. Yeah, and and the one thing I was just going to add is. On on uh, on some of those topics, if not most of them, you can see where, you know, the horse trading or the compromise, the negotiating can happen. You know, whether it's on em unemployment changes or or eminent domain or or maybe even on the ethanol mandate, but that that education savings account, that vouchers thing, that's really a go no go issue. There, there's not like a a really a middle ground piece of legislation yeah. on that. It's either they're going to get it enough people to go on board with it or they're not. And and I think that could be why this sticking point is even more, you know, profound than maybe some previous sessions. Well, and uh, I mean, I don't know that you can do a pilot project, you know, sort of, you know, right. kind of, oh, yeah, we did it, you know, but it's a pilot project or uh, so. Yeah, it's, I'm not sure where they're going to land on that. Nope. Um, one development this week, Todd, was a new ultimatum for action on the 44 year old bottle bill. Uh, leaders uh, in both the House and the Senate said, fix it or next year we're going to repeal it. Um, I'm not sure they've tried that in the past. It's, is it more likely to be more effective than the myriad other attempts to fix the bottle bill? Well, you know, from a, you know, political standpoint, it's a, it's a pretty interesting strategy. They've, you know, they've got this, the Senate bill that would basically allow, you know, grocery stores and convenience stores and people that or businesses that sell you know, cans and bottles to opt out of the bottle bill, which according to the, the Seltzer poll in February was, I think it was a by a two to one margin, Iowans don't want that to happen. And so if they don't get the bill passed that does what Iowans by a two to one margin don't want to happen, they'll repeal a law that's uh, a, that, that's supported by like 84% of Iowans. So <laughs> it's it's a very interesting approach. We're going to do something really unpopular. And if we don't get that done, we're going to do something really, really, really unpopular. So I, I, I guess, I guess when you, your, your majorities are, are invincible, 
you don't have to worry about what people think, I, I suppose. But uh, this this doesn't seem like a, a great approach. And I, I don't know that it's going to, you know, if they can't get a a, a bill done that, that sort of changes and, or as they say, modernizes the bottle bill. I'm not sure that's the right term. But uh, if they can't get that done, how how do they plan to get it repealed? <laughs> I mean, it's kind of a hollow, kind of a hollow threat. And uh, but, yeah, that would that would be interesting uh, if that actually got to the floor a vote to repeal the bottle bill to see how people would uh, vote on that because um, yeah, like you say, it, the Seltzer poll showed like eighty three, eighty four percent people like the bottle bill, and uh, it's going to be difficult to explain that uh, when you go back home for your legislative forum, unless you just skip the legislative forums. Yeah, well, that's kind of been the custom. Uh, yeah, I mean the the grocer from from Bondurant, the uh, representative, I, Los Losi is that his name? Losi, yeah. Losi, yeah. Uh, he's a, he's apparently one of the six, among the sixteen percent of Iowans that want to repeal it. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> that, that that whole thing is just amazing to me. That if you polled the American public on whether the sky is blue, I don't think you would get eighty four percent to say yes. <laughs> <laughs> here no, you have this. Here you have this issue that has that level of support, and they're still talking about repealing it. it just blows my mind. The bottle bill is just slightly more popular than like sweet corn and, and tender ones. <laughs> corn dogs at the fair. <laughs> and and uh, Todd, you wrote about something that might add sort of a um, new um, twist. Um, Tinkle oh, to the yeah. bottle bill. You mean the uh, the save a tree, pee in a bush? Yeah, my bush light. Yeah, I have not ordered my funnel, by the way. But <laughs> that uh, just seems like a, a really bad idea. Um, well, I had, I had no idea that this was that you know, sort of doing your business in the wilderness was bad for trees. That was a. <laughs> I mean, I've heard a, I, I follow a lot of environmental issues, but that was one that I had not been briefed on yeah this um this this whole thing is just making me think of the scene in uh blazing saddles where cleavon little is just holding a gun to his own head and like threatening (laughs) that something bad will happen um unless like he get what he gets what he wants with a gun pointed at his own head (laughs) you know that describes a lot of a lot of the legislature really um, yes. There's a, a lot of times when that would apply that, uh, um, yeah, if we're not going to do what you want and uh, if you don't like that, we're going to do it again, I guess. I don't know. But yeah, that, yeah, this is really popular. So let's uh, repeal it. Um, makes sense to me. But what do I know? Um, moving right along here this week, uh, the U.S. Senate made history confirming Ketanji Brown-Jackson as the first black female justice on the Supreme Court, Justice Jackson. I know that sounds sort of like a Marvel character to me. Uh, maybe, she'll, maybe she'll wear a cape instead of a robe. Um, and, and I guess it should surprise no one that Senators um, Joni Ernst and, and Chuck Grassley voted not to confirm Brown-Jackson's nomination to the court. Sarah, how did they explain um, voting against someone who they both acknowledged was, um, you know, had the qualifications 
uh, to be a justice. Yeah. So at least in Grassley's case, um, yeah, he said, you know, she's very qualified, uh, called her very smart, very graceful, but um, but ultimately voted against her. And um, he said he was really looking at her record um, in particular when he uh, released a statement. He didn't really go into the um, the attacks on her sentencing on um, on child sex abuse cases like some other Republicans have. But he really went in and um, said that uh, he took issue with her a sentence a resentencing that she did on um, a provision of the First Step Act that Grassley sponsored, which reduced some um, uh, some sentences and updated those guidelines. and And so he said that she applied the First Step Act retroactively, which um, he said shouldn't have been done. And Katanji Brown Jackson defended that, said that was within the spirit of the law. Um, and so that was uh, his, he, he believed that she wasn't, didn't fit with his judicial philosophy. So um, even though, you know, she said, oh, I don't believe in a living constitution. And it didn't really seem like Senator Grassley, um, you know, was appeased by those remarks. Did anybody ask how she would vote on repealing the bottle bill, though, uh, <laughs> <laughs> if that got to the Supreme Court? <laughs> um, it, it just seems like any more, uh, most of these nominations are really decided along party lines, and it's the, the party member who doesn't go along with the party that uh, makes the difference, in, in, especially with a 50-50 Senate. Um, yeah, it, I just wonder, Jared, if, if this was a political calculation on the part of uh, Grassley, especially Grassley, since he's going to be on the ballot this year. Um, nobody's challenged his nomination petitions. or I, He did. I guess there was a challenge, wasn't there? But he, he survived. Um, did he decide he stood to lose more votes from his base by voting for Jackson than he stood to gain from independents and Democrats if he voted for her? Um, you know, I mean, just pure politics here. Yeah, I mean, since it is, like you said, an election year for Grassley, and he does actually have a primary challenger this go-around, it's not really unfair at all to think that every political decision he has to make in 2022 is at least going to be considered somewhat in the context of whether or not it's going to affect his vote totals. Um, and it's worth uh, pointing out, too, um, at least in this year where there is a Supreme Court appointment, that um, now more Democrats are saying that the judiciary is important to them. There was a poll, I think, from March where like 59% of uh, Democrats said the issue of the Supreme Court was more important to them versus like 55% for Republicans. And in the past, the sort of understanding has been that the courts were something that the GOP was uh, more fired up about than the uh, the Democratic Party there. Um, and then, yeah, again, with Grassley, I don't know if there was ever much of a chance for him to vote for uh, Jackson. Um, 538 has those um, counters of like how often someone votes with the president. And Grassley's gone with Biden on like 54% of his votes, which is more than Ernst and is one of the higher like totals for a Republican. But the stuff he votes uh, like in favor of that goes with Biden is stuff like, you know, postal service transparency or safe drinking water. It's not on stuff where the vote margins were were close and it was a much more divided partisan issue. It, it's on stuff that is overwhelmingly in one direction. 
So something as, as big as this and as contentious as this, it, it seemed like it was always going to be that he was going to vote against her. You know, and he, he got some blowback from Republicans when he voted for the bipartisan infrastructure package and, and maybe, um, you know, vo- voting on two big issues, uh, you know, with the president voting on, for a Biden proposal or a Biden nomination. Maybe he decided that was just too much. Um, you know, that Donald Trump may switch his nomination to Jim Carlin or something. Uh, and and something like infrastructure, you can at least point to the specific stuff that's going to help out your uh, constituents. It's a lot harder case to make with something like the Supreme Court. Exactly. Good point. Yeah. Sticking with the courts here, uh, arguments were heard this week in the challenge to Abby Finkenauer's place on the June 7th Democratic primary ballot. The judge has said he will rule by April 10th, which I guess is Sunday. Um, Todd, does it seem like the judge should have just uh, flipped a coin and ruled immediately to save time since everybody assumes this decision will be appealed to the state Supreme Court? Yeah, I suppose that would have been quick. Uh, you know, it, it'll depend on what his ruling is. I mean, I think if if it, you know, if he really shoots down the challenge in a big way, then uh Maybe they won't appeal. They'll just see, kind of see the writing on the wall and, and give up the fight. But, you know, if it's more ambiguous or, of course, if he, you know, knocks her off the ballot, then I assume there will be an appeals process. And hopefully the Supreme Court would be able to take that up fairly quickly. But uh, I, I'm, I'm still skeptical that the judiciary is going to step in and overrule the the challenge board uh, and the, the process in place to remove a candidate. I just I mean, it's possible it'll and if that happens, it'll be, you know, about five o'clock this afternoon. So uh, <laughs> which will be which will be nice for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Especially since we have early deadlines. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it'll be at 645, 15 minutes before. Um, and, versions. <laughs> yeah. And while we're waiting uh, for a decision in uh, that court case, uh, county auditors are worried that they won't have time to print ballots uh, soon enough to send them to overseas voters, uh, which they're supposed to do 45 days before the election, which, if I count correctly, is about April 23rd. And uh, the estimates and how long it takes for ballots to be printed and delivered uh, ranges from a couple of days to a couple of weeks. So. Uh, if this drags on at all, uh, county auditors are worried that they're not going to meet the those deadlines for early voting. And, and, of course, that would just really throw things into turmoil if they don't hit those deadlines. And meanwhile, candidates are out raising money and polling like it's all systems go, whether they're going to be on the ballot or not, I guess. Um, according to Finkenauer's polling, she has the nomination sewn up. And Franken is touting his $1.4 million money haul as evidence he's the candidate to beat. Uh, Sarah, Christina Bohannon supporters released a poll this week showing her within striking distance of Republican Representative Marionette Miller-Meeks. It showed her trailing the incumbent by just one percentage point. That doesn't seem like great news, does it, in a district where Democrats have an advantage of about 10,000 active voters? Yeah, and um, and honestly, with with uh, internal polls, I'm always a little skeptical of you know they don't release maybe as much methodology as like a uh, you know a um, somebody outside of the campaigns might do, and so you know within one percentage point of represent of Republican representative Marionette Miller Meeks, I mean um, 
you know, with 10,000 more voters on the Democratic side, sure, it doesn't seem like that would maybe be super favorable um, as far as like, also, if it's an internal poll, you don't know, is there going to be bias toward the candidate? Um, So it's it definitely seems like it'll still be a tough fight, um, especially considering Miller Meeks won by like six votes. So I think even with the poll not showing, you know, she's like ahead or anything, she definitely has some ground to make up. And there's still several months until the general election. So she seems to be touting it as, you know, here we're at least, you know, we at least got our foot in the door. And there are 15 and according to the poll, there were 15 percent of the voters undecided. So. There's no primary in, in that the new first district. It will take us a while to get those numbers <laughs> correct. Mm-hmm. Um, are you seeing much evidence of the race? Is there much campaign activity? Honestly, in the Quad Cities, there really isn't much at all. Miller Meeks came to Davenport um, several months ago uh, when she was announcing her reelection campaign. And um, Christina Bohannon hasn't. Uh, at least as as long as I've been in the job, which has been a couple months, she hasn't been to uh, been to the Quad Cities area. So there might be more campaigning going on, like in your neck of the woods, but uh, not at least in the Quad Cities. Uh, it, it's interesting in talking to uh, campaign folks this week. Uh, Finkenauer spokesman said her internal poll showing her with a fifty point lead um, over Franken uh, was not a send money poll which often is the case with these internal polls uh, showing a close race. And in Bohannon's case, the within striking distance email uh, was followed later in the day by one that said, send money. <laughs> We're within striking distance. We need your money. So, <laughs> Speaking of activity, Jared, is there any activity in the fourth district? I guess there is a Democratic candidate, isn't there? Uh, yeah, and I haven't really heard uh, much of them at all uh, at this point. It's not uh, some inscrutable uh, metric, but we're not seeing any events for or press releases from uh, the Democratic candidate, um, Ryan Melton, who's running against Feenstra in the 4th District. It's been absolute crickets, and uh, at least at this time, uh, his uh, campaign's like Facebook page, which again, not the end-all be-all, but... Uh, it is a point has less than 400 followers. I think it has like 311 or something like that. Um, so maybe they're trying to get all their ducks in a row before they really start hitting the campaign trail, but it's April and he's running against someone in Feenster who won by more than 20% against a candidate in JD Scholten who had high name recognition. So that's a lot of work to do as a challenger in the fourth district. And at least as of now, that work doesn't seem to be happening in a super visible way, at least in our neck of the woods. Todd, I'm not sure letters to the editor are the best way to gauge public sentiment, uh, but do you get any sense that voters are engaged in um, any of these races, especially where there are primaries? Yeah. I mean, I, most of the letters we get, we've we've been getting that have you know that are related to the election have been about the first and second district congressional races people criticizing Liz Mathis for voting against the tax cuts in the legislature and people complaining that Marionette Miller Meeks uh I forget exactly she she didn't support uh some bills that they thought she should support which is a pretty normal topic for letters to the editor uh we get letters complaining about Grassley, but 
no, we have, I haven't seen much of anything in support of either Finkenauer or uh, Franken. So, or the other candidate whose name I'm, I'm blanking. Glenn Hurst. Glenn Hurst. Yeah. Who is, he's, according to the Finkenauer poll, he's what, 60 points behind, something like yeah. that? Yeah. That was before the uh, CCI endorsement bump that he'll surely get this week. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. My uh, my internal polling shows that everyone should give me a lot of money, like right now, like as soon as possible. Fork over the <laughs> fork over the dough. That's what the numbers say. Yeah. You have to throw a deadline in there. You know, we're coming up yes. on the end of the month. My rent is due. Yes. Money now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. The rent is too damn high, so send money. <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for this edition of On Iowa Politics. If you enjoy the podcast, tell your friends and subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Fan mail may be sent to podcast at thegazette.com. Stay up to date on the Iowa Legislature by subscribing to the Capital Digest newsletter under the Iowa Legislature tab at thegazette.com. And don't forget that the work of everyone you heard here today can be found on the pages and websites of the Quad City Times, Waterloo, Cedar Falls Courier, Sioux City Journal, Mason City Globe Gazette, Muscatine Journal, Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil, and the Cedar Rapids Gazette. The Olympics will take us out. If you know an Iowa band or musician who should be on the podcast, send us a sound file and subscribe to On Iowa Politics. For Aaron, Todd, Sarah, Jared, and our producer, Stephen, I'm James Lynch. Thanks for listening. Be well.
Get a daily update from the Gazette with our daily news podcast. Add it to your podcast player or your Alexa-friendly device to get a bite-sized local news update each day. Check it out at thegazette.com slash podcasts.